Hello. This is required viewing. Well, I remember because I talked about pornos. I was talking about how there's these porn stars that like, they look kind of like that, like some sort of trash hillbilly that walked off the street. No offense, but maybe in some cases. But and then they put on all this makeup and then they look like these hot, you know, women for the porn and then they wash it all away and you're like, ah, oh my gosh. And then some of these women on TikTok, they like put their teeth in. Oh my God, they don't have teeth. That one lady that I showed you right before we hit record, that woman does not have teeth. In other videos, she puts her teeth in. Oh, I think there's a bunch of bitches that put their fucking teeth in. Dude, and they that was put, one of the most paint a new face on their body. Dude, that was and, the most traumatizing thing of my childhood. Or one of them was like, I thought my great grandfather just had really good genetics, and that he had his real hair, and he just dyed it, and that he had his real teeth. And in one fell swoop, those things were both proven wrong. <laughs> Wig off, teeth out, and I was like, <gasps> it was another one of those things where my mom was like, "Well, yeah, Chloe, he's like 83." Oh I was like, God. I don't know. Some people still have their choppers at 83. That's terrifying, right? It was like, dude, my grandma used to and take it was, her teeth like, <gasps> out though. My grandma had dentures. Yeah, she used to pop them out. She used to run around with no teeth in all the time. See, so I was thinking, but, but I, this, I know this is like direct. This is direct deception. These women are going out to paint their faces to look like something that they aren't. And I, okay, I'm okay with glam. There is a place to like have, but you a glam up. You makeup as a general rule <clears throat> should be there to enhance your beauty. What you already have, that you already have. Because that's the whole point, isn't it? Is that nobody can be you, and you're your own. And once you have confidence, and you're in your own natural, but not. The confidence you get with painting somebody else's face onto your face. Exactly. That doesn't know, count. Man. You should worry more about skincare than you should about makeup. Cause yeah. Because the makeup will show what fucked up If your skin's done. fucked up, you can wear 10 pounds of makeup, but you will have to eventually wear it off. If you take care of your skin, then you don't have to wear nearly as much makeup because your skin is already beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, some people have hormonal stuff. Not everybody no, can. That's too. I mean, I get that. I got hormonal stuff too. But like, but your skin looks amazing. I don't know how. Because you said you've been putting on cold cream since you were born. Basically. No, dude, you came I out use... in a vat of cold cream. I don't use cold cream near. I said I use cold. I mean, if cold cream, a hundred year old product, not like the same product from a hundred years ago. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. producing <laughs> Somebody the same un- thing. Un- it's just it. really great. And when it comes to like taking off FX makeup and stage makeup and really, like really heavy cake makeup, mm-hmm. there is nothing like cold cream. Not only does it get the makeup off your face, but it also like it does have like a little cold soothingness mm-hmm. to it. And it's really thick and moisturizing. So when you like, refreshes your yeah, face. Yeah, it's the best thing ever. That's why Joan Crawford was the sponsor for that shit for decades. That bitch knew what was up. She had to. You yeah, can't... she was Joan Crawford. <laughs> oh my god. Welcome back to the Required Viewing Podcast. Welcome, welcome. I'm Erin. I'm Chloe. Shit. <laughs> That's a great way to welcome everybody. <laughs> hey, we're this person. Shit. Shit. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you. If you've made it this far and you've been like going along. No. Um, I was going to say thank you. <laughs> Not good luck and Godspeed. 
Um, it gets a little crazy around here. I'm glad people stuck around. Um, and I'm hoping you're ready to continue to get crazy and fantastical because this week we're into fantasy. Um, and our movies this week were really the cornerstone of visual effects for their time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially our first movie. Oh, hell yeah. Jason and the Argonauts. Fuck yeah, that one came out in 1963. Followed by Time Bandits. Which came out in 1981. And then wrapping up with a still very oh, I love sadly... It horrifically relevant cartoon Ugh. that I mentioned that I couldn't get in last week, but I wanted to get it in this week. Right. See, we um, did a transition. We did. We did. Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Oh, I forgot it had The Last Rainforest as its, like, That's ta- the like, whole title. title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, I guess it's the title title, but yeah, 1992 for that Correct. Guy. Um, Before we dive balls deep into Jason and the Argonauts, though. Oh, my God. Did you like that? Uh, we it could have been have... more relevant to the movie. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, we have a really big announcement to make. Um, if you hear this first or see the companion video, we're going to be making a little video about it too and posting on our socials. Um, but we finally, 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 drum roll please, uh, we have our merch store and it is live and we have a, it's merch store website, whole thing. We've got a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot going on on there. <laughs> We got some really cool merch that's up for pre-order right now. Most of them are pre-orders. Yeah, yeah and we have some merch that you can see that's coming soon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are an artistic homie and you want to maybe design for us, feel free to DM us because that's an option we've been talking about to kind of highlight some of our friends who are artists. So um, there's always opportunities to like work yeah. with us and do stuff with us hit up the info at required viewing podcast.com and correct that one we can we'll we'll hit you up um speaking of growing the podcast chloe you're going to tell us about something exciting that's on that website so the merch store yeah is besides much, the merch store well i mean the merch store itself it's we're we're dropping bombs today man like it's more than just the merch store we yes. get like three big hitters a yes. the merch store b we are now launching Street Team 22. Pew, pew, street Team. I like all the action. What is Street Team? Tell me about Street Team. Street Explain Team. Street what team. is Street Team? Well, so Street Team is a way to help our RVP community grow and also get some access to some sweet ass merch. Uh, street Team 22. Yeah, that's right. Action. Uh, so basically, it's it's one part you're helping us out, you know, showing the love, and the other part grim awesome fantastical competition yeah so we got a scavenger hunt going on so how it's gonna work is you're going to sign up to be a street team member and you'll be purchasing um some limited edition stickers Mm -hmm. and then we are going to ask you the fantastic viewer to place those stickers in wonderful magical creative places we're talking real creative like yeah. i think we were talking like george a statue of george washington washington's butt yes. like uh a whale memorial yeah. uh something anything. don't desecrate anything oh yeah don't do don't do that, that put it in a dope illegal. place that's chill to put it at <laughs> yeah um so we'll have pre-sale available for our street team stickers hopefully that we don't have very many um, it's a limited edition of street team stickers so it is first come first serve and i do expect it to sell out so limited um, time only. it will be available it's available now for pre-order yes run now yeah you, available you now. can do it 
right now. This the second. scavenger hunt, however, you will have till uh, July 30th. Yes. July 30th or August 30th? I think August is the end of the summer, right? Not everybody goes back to school in August. Oh, okay. Some people right. in September. So I say we give it till August 31st. Okay. So we decree right now. Right now. August Boom. 31st, scavenger hunt will end. Whoever has the best, most creative placement of their sticker slash stickers mm. will get a limited edition scavenger hunt 22 winner t-shirt designed for them limited edition rvp t-shirt beyond these stickers though um if you sign up for street team you're going to get early bird access to our live shows and you'll also get 10 percent off our merch store cool um speaking of live shows hey 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 live shows we were like (laughs) we were I won't shut the fuck up about a live show because for some reason I want to hang out with you fuckers. I don't want to come to your city. Let's watch. That let's sounds get... really threatening and intimidating. <laughs> I'm coming to your city. <coughs> but let's anyway. Get weird. Let's get wild. Let's oh watch movies. But yeah, you know, not everybody gets to sit in the living. Actually, no one really gets to Well, some people get to sit in the living room. Some of our guests get to sit well, in the living room. Blake got to sit room, in the living room. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Blakey Blake. Uh, but yeah, so... You can come hang out with us and watch a movie and hear this stuff live and all the stuff that doesn't get cut. Yeah, because I get, I have a a well of knowledge that I would like to bestow upon you. Come watch movies with us. I'm coming to your town and I'm going to spill all my knowledge on you. <laughs> um, but the real exciting news is uh, another little piece of the pie of our website is there's a link to our GoFundMe because because our first live show is supposed to be in Los Angeles, California. The City of Angels. Mm. Yeah, so if you want to help us get to our LA live show. Help RVP get to LA. Can donate there, my friends. Uh, We really hope you can. If you can't make it to the show um, in LA, because everyone who donates will also get a discount yeah. um, to the show mm-hmm. and get access to a live stream. Most of our live shows, we're also going to live stream for those who can't make it because we're going to be watching different movies every time more or less. Yeah. So. But initially, we want to add more to that to that live show's dream. You know, we wanted, we're, LA's the first stop, but we are going other places too. If you yes. really want us to come to your town, like... Get a hold of us. Let's Let us work know. it out. Let's find a theater in your city that wants to put on a movie for us. <laughs> Excuse me. Can you play this movie? I'm just going to come with 100 to 200 of my closest friends. Yeah, we're just going to come kick it for a little bit. Hope oh you don't God. mind. Um, so, yeah, those are the three big announcements. I feel like there was something else. Are we missing anything? We got the merch store. We got merch the store. Live, show, live show. And we got Street Team. Street Team. Street Team. Oh, we do have one more announcement. We, do. we have one more guest of the season. Oh, this is we the do last have one more like, announcement. I think this is also since we're just like fucking spilling it all right now. We're we might spilling as well. everything. We're spilling all the tea. <laughs> we're gonna let it out right now. Um, our last episode of the season is going to be comedy, Ooh. and we are going to have guest uh, Mary Jennifer Mitchell on. She is an actress who has worked in New York, L.A., all the big markets. She's Worked with some really amazing, powerful people, and we're going to talk about some of her old famous friends when we watch some really amazing, funny movies, which we'll get to at the end of next episode. And after the end of next episode, we're going to kind of want to 
watch something funny. funny. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> but this episode, I think it's time to get cracking, rocking, and rolling. You wanna you wanna dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Jason. Um, Jason and the Argonauts. What? What? <laughs> hey. <laughs> Um, this, if hopefully you know that this is based on a Greek mythology story. And I or do just say Greek based. Mythology, yeah. It is loosely based. Uh, it still kind of runs side there by is, side. I read the list of changes of there between a this of movie and the original text, and it's a lot. Okay. It's a lot. They took a lot of liberties. But anyway, um, we have Peleus. That's not right. Peleus. <laughs> oh my god. Sometimes, man. Peleus, Som- come Peleus some fruit. <laughs> uh, Peleus usurps the throne of Thessaly, killing King Astro, but knows that a prophecy states that one of Astro's children will avenge him. The god Hermes, disguised as a soothsayer, watches as the infant Jason, Astro's son. Mm-hmm. Is Astro spirit- or Astro? Uh, well, Astro. <laughs> I'm having a moment now. I know. I was like, there's all these really old Greek names. I know. I'm not Greek. <laughs> that Greek. Not that Greek. Um, Astro. Astro's. Astro. Now I'm confused. Astro. I, I've confused myself. Think of like the Jetsons. Like it's the dog not, the though, Jetsons. There's A-R-I. Oh. Aris- A-R-I what? A-R-I-S-T-O. Aristo. Aristo. Oh, Ar- Ar- yeah. Aristo or Aristo? If you know, again, Aristo. Aristo. That's what I was saying earlier. Aristo. Anyway, um, the god Hermes, disguised as a, as a soothsayer, watches as infant Jason, Aristo's son, is spirited away by one of his soldiers. Peleus slays one of his daughters after she seeks sanctuary in the temple of goddess Hera. Because the murderer has profaned her temple, Hera becomes Jason's protector. She warns Peleus that to beware of the one-sandaled man. (laughs) What would you do if you got that note? I would tell him he needs to find his other sandal. Or you'd wonder how he lost it, wouldn't you? That's true, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, Jason saves Peleus from drowning in a river and accident orchestrated by Hera, but loses his sandal in the process, so Peleus recognizes him as his enemy. Learning that Jason intends to seek the legendary Golden Fleece to rally support against him, he encourages Jason in the attempt, hoping that he will be killed in the process. Hermes takes Jason to Mount Olympus to speak with Zeus and Hera. Hera tells him that Zeus has decreed that she can help only five times. This is the same number of times that Jason's murdered sister had called on Hera for protection. That's a weird fucked up way to do that. I mean, the Greeks, man. They Have you tragedy. read a Greek tragedy? They're not... No, I know it's a tragedy. It's just like... It's, they run on their own rules, man. It's weird. There's no rhyme or reason. They just decree shit. Anyway. <laughs> okay. She directs him to search for the fleece in the land of Cochleus. Zeus offers aid, but Jason declines. Hmm. Men from all over Greece compete for the honor of joining in his quest. Because their ship is named Argo after the builder Argus, Mm -hmm. the crew is then dubbed the Argonauts. Among them are Hercules and Acastus, the son of Peleus, unknown to Jason, sent by his father to sabotage the voyage. 
Hera guides Jason to the Isle of Bronze, but warns him to take nothing but provisions. However, Hercules doesn't listen at all (laughs) and steals a brooch pin from the building filled with treasure surmounted by a giant bronze statue of Talos. The statue comes to life and attacks the Argonauts. Cue the Ray Harryhausen stop motion animation. So cool. We're going to talk about. That's mostly what I'm going to talk about here in a little bit. So Me too, get man. ready. That's all, that's all there is. <laughs> I know, right? Jason again turns to Hera, who tells him to open up a large plug on Talos's heel to release the giant ichor, aka magic juice. Yo, gross. you remember he just leaks a bunch <laughs> no, of juice. Yeah, I, remember. I just thought it, to me it looked like rust. Yeah, ichor, whatever the fuck. He's around the ocean and like he's I... a big old metal statue. Like that's yeah. rusty water. Uh, it's magic juice. Okay. Magic juice. Magic juice. I don't know. Maybe we're just too far gone and fucked up to not just to see the innocence in that. Magic juice. (laughs) Talos falls to the ground, crushing Helios and hiding his body. Hercules refuses to leave until he ascertains the fate of his friend. The other Argonauts are unwilling to abandon Hercules. So Jason calls upon Hera again. So that's three. Three. She informs him that Helios is dead and that Zeus has other plans for Hercules. Hera directs Jason to seek out Phineas, who has been blinded and is tormented by harpies for misusing Zeus's gift of prophecy. After the Argonauts capture and cage the harpies, Phineas tells them how to reach their destination by sailing between, by sailing between the clashing rocks. He also gives Jason an amulet of the sea god Triton. The Argonauts see another ship trying to pass through the other way, only to be crushed and sunk in the clashing rocks as they smash together dramatically. Mm -hmm. Upon Jason's refusal to turn back, when the Argo goes to try to row through, the ship appears to be doomed as well. In despair, Jason throws Phineas's amulet into the water, whereupon Triton rises up and holds the rock apart the rocks apart long enough for the Argo to pass. Upon clearing the rocks, the Argonauts rescue a survivor from the other ship, the wonderfully and deadly Medea. See, but now everybody, if you don't know, then you just think it's fucking Tyler Perry's Medea. No, it's just this beautiful Greek fabulous big titted lady named Medea. But they're in place. They're not like saggy like the other correct. (laughs) Finally, nearing the end, Acostas challenges Jason's authority and engages him into a duel. Disarmed, Acostas jumps into the sea and disappears. Jason and his his men land and accept an invitation from King Aedes to feast. That's a that's they've had a rough trip. It's been exciting, dude. If you got now a big like feast after food. all that ocean traveling and fighting and junk and Triton separating the down. clashing rocks, oh, gosh, just, just have a break. Sit down, some just wine, some dude. Let's, Let's get drunk. It. Break bread. <laughs> Unfortunately, unknown to them, Acostas has warned the king of Jason's quest for the golden fleece, and the unwary the unwary Argonauts are imprisoned. But Medea, having fallen madly in love with Jason, helps him and his men escape. Mm-hmm. Acostas tries to steal the fleece first, but is then killed by its guardian, the Hydra. Jason is able to kill the beast and take the fleece. Medea is mortally wounded by an arrow, but Jason heals her with the fleece. 
Aedes then sows the hydra's teeth and prays to the goddess Hecate. Seven armed skeletons, called the children of the hydra's teeth, emerge from the ground. Jason, Jason, Phalarius, and Castor hold them off while Medea and Argus escape back to the Argo with the fleece. After a prolonged battle in which his companions are killed, Jason escapes by jumping into the sea. And he, Medea, and the surviving Argonauts begin their vo- uh, their very long voyage back to Thessaly. But only one dude's got a lady, so that's going to be a rough trip. I know, right? <laughs> On Olympus, Zeus tells Hera that while Jason can enjoy his triumph now, he is not done with him. Dum, dum, dum. Sounds like the gods got a lot of plans for everybody. I know. They're bored as fuck. Right? They need like, to find something else life? better to do. Speaking of... Girl, why should we give a shit about this movie? <laughs> Hi. Oh my God. Did you love that? I literally, dude, I literally only have one fucking, well, one person to talk about. I only have like one like nugget of information and that is the man, the myth, the legend, the legend, stop motion animation, God, mm-hmm. Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen. Bam. Maybe if you've seen the movie Monsters, Inc., that name might sound familiar to you if you don't know who he is, that Mike Wazowski takes his lady friend to Harryhausen's. Oh, that's awesome. That's at the beginning. It's a big nod to them because a lot of stop motion animation paved the way for what we use as CGI now. CGI now, yeah. Let's get into that. You want to get into that? I want to get into that. Oh my god. <laughs> he was inspired to do stop motion animation and get into filmmaking after seeing King Kong in 1930. Mm-hmm. And until his father's death in 1973, Ray worked exclusively with his dad. His dad would weld together the metal like bones, armatures mm-hmm. of these models. And then Ray would go actually put the skin and muscles onto these bones mm-hmm. and that and they work together and then eventually after his dad died he had a like a big school and he taught a lot of people and dude i wish i could have gone to that school I know, that's pretty great right yeah um his filmography because i feel like a lot of people might have seen his movies but don't just don't know understand who went into making these movies as memorable as they were. Mm-hmm. So some movies that you might have seen. It came from Beneath the Sea, Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, mm-hmm. The Three wor- Worlds of Gulliver, Clash of the Titans, Mighty Joe Young, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. The list goes on and on. It's a lot of Greek mythology. A hundred percent. His career lasted from the 1950s all the way up until his death in 2013. And towards the end of his life, he did a number of on-screen cameos and some remakes of his original films. Oh, cool. Namely, he was in, he had a cameo and some lines in Mighty Joe Young. I was going to say, I was like, The remake with Charlize Theron in the <clears throat> early 2000s. Mm-hmm. The list of people who have been influenced by his films are also a long one. Numerous. So I'm just going to quote a few people who came out after his death in 2013. Um, <laughs> it sounds like they came out of the closet. No, no, man. I know it's Pride Month, but not everybody's coming out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, these people took to the internet uh, to show their support and their love for the R-H, fucking badass the that was Ray Harryhausen. 
So the BBC quoted Peter Lord of Ardman Animations, who wrote on Twitter that Harryhausen was, quote, a one-man industry and a one-man genre, end quote. The BBC also quoted Shaun of the Dead director Edgar Wright. Yeah. Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. Quote, I loved every single frame of Ray Harryhausen's work. He was the man who made me believe in monsters, end mm. quote. In a full statement by the family of George Lucas. Wow. They released a statement saying, with, quote, without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars. Terry Gilliam, who we're going to talk about next week. Uh-huh. Actually, fuck, we're going to talk about next. next. Not next, Not next week. week. Next, this next, next fucking movie we're going to talk about <laughs> Terry Gilliam. Sorry, my brain's a little fried. Uh, Terry Gilliam said, what we do now digitally with computers, Ray did digitally long before without computers, only using his digits. <laughs> I know Sorry. that's very that is very Terry Gilliam. That is very Terry Gilliam. And for quote. those of you who don't know too, Ardman Studios is Wallace and Gromit. Correct. They mm-hmm. do all that stuff, which that's what honestly that's what got me into stop motion was seeing really? that first. But then also to all the holiday movies, holiday like movies. Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, yeah. and Year we're going to talk Claus. about all those stop motion holiday movies this year. So we get have ready to. Um, James Cameron said, quote, I think all of us who are practitioners in the arts of science fiction and fantasy movies now all feel that we are standing on the shoulders of a giant. If not for Ray's contributions to the collective dreamscape, we would not be who we are today. Mm-hmm. John Walsh, author of Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, calls Ray the most influential stop motion animator and special effects wizard in cinema history. And Damn, I dude. think. That is a heavy title, but an apt one. Has anybody, like, come out to say who's, like, the next Ray Harryhausen? Not really, because they're the only... I mean, you've got John Lasseter, I guess, from, you know, all the Pixar stuff. Correct. Uh, What eventually took over for stop motion is Pixar Mm -hmm. and all the 3D animation that we have now. But people don't really do stop motion. It's, like, a rare occasion that someone finds the money for... Someone produces it. a stop motion, and it's like a niche thing. Well, Tim Burton, right? Yeah, we've got Corpse Bride, Nightmare Before Christmas, mm-hmm. um, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. There's a lot of work that goes into it. But it it's is. A truly, it's really expensive. Yeah. It's not. It's very time-consuming. It's not worth a studio's time unless there's some weird niche market. You know what I mean? Like with the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Exactly. <laughs> they got George Clooney, and they were like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> then there was the, oh, didn't Wes Anderson do one? There was some... D- the Life of Dogs or something? Yes, Do you The Isle of that? Dogs. The Isle of Dogs. The Isle of Dogs. Yeah. That was stop motion too. Yeah, it was. That's like my most recent example. Yeah. I mean, stop motion's been going on for a long time and it got real popular in the 70s and the 80s and a little obviously in the 60s too. But because I just, I always think about like in terms of pop culture, like uh, what was oh Sorry for the train going by. You're going to have to deal with it. Sorry, folks. It's happening. It's life. Well, that spurred in my like my memory. Peter Gabriel. Yes, he had like dope stop motion '80s music videos. I loved them. Oh Spread yeah, stop motion was used in a lot mm, of '80s mu- mm, music videos. I feel why like. don't you think? Anyway, sorry, I love that song. I love Peter Gabriel. I had a weird crush on Peter Gabriel. I don't know why. Oh, okay. 
I mean, he was the lead singer for Genesis, and then Phil Collins took over. And Phil Collins is... He was... He had a moment when he had hair. (laughs) (laughs) I can't talk bad about Phil Collins, because he literally just fucking played his last Genesis show, because his body's deteriorated so much, he can't fucking play drums anymore, he can't sing anymore. Have you seen the pictures of him? He looks like the Crypt Keeper. It's terrifying. It's so sad. I want to remember him as I remember him from like Tarzan days. You know what I mean? No. No. (laughs) No. It's real sad. But that's what I'm trying to say is that I'm not like super into him in that way. But Peter Gabriel had something else. Maybe hair. I'm just kidding. Hair. I'm kidding. It's important to me. Oh, I'm into hair. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, um, well, yeah, we were talking about how stop motion is like, I don't know, it's, it, it impacted my childhood a lot and it impacted yours because mm-hmm. both of us had seen this movie via our fathers, mm-hmm. which I'm so glad he showed me. But as you were talking about Ray, how Harry, how yeah, man, the- I watched all these, all the ones I've watched all, all the sun Sinbads with my dad and the Jasons. This one was played. I feel like on TCM a lot. Yeah. I remember that skeleton, you and I were so excited for that fucking skeleton scene, which I think is probably the most famous It's the most scene notable scene. And that's honestly, movie. like, if you look up Ray Harryhausen, that's kind of what the comes skeletons up first. Come because up that's first, yeah. kind of where they invented the style of stop motion that he was yep. doing. Which I have information on, of course. Give it to me. So, well, he was, you know, the pioneer of stop motion animation, but he wasn't the first. Like, there was definitely people before Ray Harryhausen. But he pioneered this a distinctive technique referred to as dynamation. You use a split screen with rear projection. And so that split screen has been around as special effects from almost the beginning of film. So that part is not new. And what they did was then they filmed a stunt man, a prop man, and prop men threw, uh, you know what is funny? Those skeletons, the prop men threw seven like plaster skeletons. Not like that movie where they just moved the bones of real humans. These were just plaster skeletons. <laughs> That's, I'm sorry, that made me laugh because your face, you were just like, really? And well, one of the reasons why they did that too is like, they threw those because there was a big question of how do you kill a skeleton? They're already dead. And so they were like, well, let's just throw them over the ocean. And they had to do it in one take because they didn't, weren't able to get them back. They actually threw them over the cliff. <laughs> So, anywho's it's so yeah, you get the split background and the foreground of a pre-shot live action footage into two separate images. So that's why they film the actors. And I think they they really use the stop motion in reaction to what the actors are doing. So that it's not like the actors have to match something else that might be a little awkward. They can just do, you know, the stage fighting thing, which you and I talked a little bit about that. Not everybody knows what goes into that sort of thing. So, so into which of those separate images he would animate a model or models seemingly integrating live action with models. So he has the armature and then he fleshed it out with latex and then he ran the process guided by concept drawings and storyboard. And he was pretty known for doing the whole process Mm -hmm. himself. Like Mm -hmm. everything from concepting and storyboarding to the animating and building the models to like all of it. Which That's why I said it was like a family business. It was legitimately just his dad and him. But they they have teams of of people to do that. Like there's several teams for like one character. And he's like, I'm doing all of them, all seven skeletons. I know. So... That's a really, I don't know, that's really important to me. I really love stop motion animation. And it definitely adapts something. 
This was important because it split live action with stop motion, which before it was just either one or the other. But this one included bolts, which opened up the doors to using what kind of looked probably at the time to those people in the 60s like real skeletons. James and Giant Peach. Why didn't we mention that Beca- one? That one's awesome. Oh my God, market. yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Oh, I so love my good. favorite like explanation as to how difficult and painstaking stop motion animation is, is in <laughs> Parks and Rec when Ben gets fired and he's on Oh my God, I love and that And he's episode. sitting at home and um to that rem yeah he makes this little stop motion video and it's taking him like two weeks and chris traeger comes over and he watches the video for him and it's literally just like it was down where the place where we live that's it it's like (laughs) 20 seconds and it took him like two weeks to make and he was like oh i didn't realize it was that short yeah it takes so long and it's so painstaking to do anything stop motion if you're really into that though it's It's fun because you're sculpting these things you're getting yeah you have to have patience which we talk about patience over here at rvp all the time not but you know, so happens. he's he's known to say, I had three men fighting, seven skeletons, and each skeleton five appendages to move in each separate frame of the film. And so animation movements, each of them were synchronized to the actor's movements. See, that's what we were talking about. And like lastly, too, he said there's a dreamlike quality about this style of stop motion that he Absolutely. does. He said, it's like a dream. It's like a nightmare. So it's both a combination of a dream and a nightmare because it's these things that you couldn't see that would normally come to life that are doing that. But also it's dreamlike because you know that it's not real. Mm-hmm. Or at least you think it's not real. You hope it's not real. Dun, dun, dun. But yeah, I just thought it was really funny that they just literally threw those seven skeletons, plaster skeletons, like over the cliff. They're like, Hoo! And that's it. That's it. You only get one take. If you fuck it up, if somebody was like, ooh, no. That's it. Speaking of, that's it. That's it. That's it. Oh, my God. That was a great transition. <laughs> oh, shit. I love that movie. And oh. now, picture it. 1981. Well, it's. I guess, yeah, I guess it's set in 1981. But we're about to go on a weird historical journey. Oh, yeah. In the fucked up twisted ass mind of terry gilliam here we go it's time bandits it's definitely a specific style of filmmaking that he does it's very notable that it's his i guess that's the kind of theme for today's fanny fantasy episode fanny episode fanny episode (laughs) um the fantasy episode our little undercurrent is like all three of these movies are highly stylized in Mm -hmm. very three different ways you know what i mean that's very true yeah like yeah so. We did well. We did well with our choices, okay? <laughs> Good choice. Prince Confidence. Here we go. Time bandits. <laughs> that is not the theme song, by <laughs> It's the way. not at all, but that's the theme song <laughs> I'm giving it. 11-year-old Kevin has a vivid imagination and is fascinated by history, particularly that of ancient Greece. His parents ignore him. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Having Sorry, become more, I mean, they do. They, they do not do. like their child. Well, dude, he's gone for a long ass time. And well, uh, this is before that. You're you're jumping the gun. Hold on. Oh, because well, his so parents it's a, are it's pretty a systemic. Ignoration. They're very Ignorance. neglectful of him this entire time. Mm-hmm. Our opening sees them more interested in the TV and obsessed with buying the latest household gadgets to keep up with the neighbors. One night. As Kevin is sleeping, an armored knight on a horse bursts out of his wardrobe. 
Kevin is scared, fucking obviously. Right? Yeah, shit, man. And hides as the knight rides off into a forest setting that now is where his wall once was. That's some freaky shit. Um, That's very Peter Pan. I know. It's pretty cool. You wake up and someone's in your room. Yeah. (laughs) When Kevin looks back out, the room is back to normal, but he finds that one of the photos on his wall is similar to the forest that he saw. Hmm. The next night, he prepares a satchel with supplies and a Polaroid camera, but is surprised when six dwarves spill out of the wardrobe. This kid was prepared. I know. He's really self-sufficient for someone whose parents ignored him all the time. For an 11-year-old, too. Yeah, that, too. I was not like... Stranger Things vibes. Definitely. Except he's by himself. I would not have thought about any of this. Friends don't lie because he don't have any friends. Right. Kevin quickly learns that the group have stolen a large worn map and they are looking for an exit from his room before they are discovered. They find that the bedroom wall can be pushed back, revealing a long hallway. Kevin is insistent to join them until an apparition of a floating head appears Mm -mm. who goes by the name of the Supreme Being. And be like, I'm, I'm... Dying or something, right? Something's going to happen to me. Something bad. Yeah, your life is flashing before your eyes. <laughs> or- this head is now demanding the return of the map. And Kevin and the dwarves are chased down the hallway until they fall into the empty void at the end of the hallway and somehow magically land in Italy during the Battle of Leone. I'd rather land there like when it was not in a war-torn situation. Right? Right. <laughs> <coughs> As they recover, Kevin learns that Randall, the lead dwarf, the dwarves also include <laughs> these names, man. Fidget, <laughs> Strutter, Og, Wally, and Vermin. Damn. I They know. don't like him, I guess. I know. I bet you his name was Vernon, and they were like, no, we're going to call you Vermin. Probably. These guys are really fucking mean to each other, so I wouldn't be they surprised are. by that. And then the lead guy just gets to be called fucking Randall. Yeah, Whatever. what is up with that? I know, right? I, mean, they, I totally heard you before you said it saying Randall. Like, that's totally <laughs> what I was thinking when you said it. <laughs> Randall. He finds out that they were once employed by the Supreme Being to repair holes in the space-time fabric. But instead, they realize that the potential to use the map to identify holes and then steal riches from time. So they decide to use Kevin's help and they visit several locations within the space-time continuum, meeting such notable figures as Napoleon Bonaparte and Robin Hood. Oh, my God. He went away and joined a gang. That's what he did. Oh, my God. He did join a right? gang. Right? I was like, they're getting him to commit crimes and stuff? That's exactly what Oh, my God. This Okay. This movie takes a this whole movie, new I turn. I know. This movie's getting weirder and weirder. Oh, my God. So, he's in a dwarf gang. Sorry. Little person. Okay. okay. But, okay. So, he's in a I little wanna, I want to take a sidebar out of the thing right now because in the context of fantasy, I still believe that it, if it's not used derogatively. Mm-hmm. Dwarves are okay because, like in D and D, there's a class of dwarves and mm-hmm. elves. They well, are mythical like Lord creatures. Of the Rings. We are not talking about human beings here. We are talking about mythical beings. So I am not right. calling a person a dwarf. We are talking about the mythical beings of dwarves. Of dwarves. Well, because the Lord of the Rings too, right? Correct. They have entire different populations of dwarves. Correct. So it's a thing. So Dwemer, don't get mad <laughs> if you're into Skyrim. Skyrim also have dwarves. Yeah, Dwemer. But he joined Palmer. a dwarf gang. That's what Correct. he did. 
Um, Pay attention to your kids. That's what that means, parents. (laughs) His parents genuinely just did not give a fuck about it. Right. If you don't pay attention to your kids, they're going to go into some space-time continuum shit, and they're going to join a dwarf gang, and it's going to be your fault. Kevin uses his camera to document their visits. However, they are unaware that they are being monitored by evil, a malevolent being who is being a malevolent being who is able to manipulate reality and is attempting to acquire the map himself so that he can remake the universe in his own design. Or in his own image. Both. (laughs) Both. Both. Through evil's actions, Kevin becomes separated from the group and ends up in the Mycenaean Greece era, meeting King Agamemnon. After Kevin inadvertently helps Agamemnon kill a minotaur, the king adopts him. Which is super cool because, like we mentioned, yeah. his parents don't love him. So now he is to be like the he son new of, parents. of a cool Greek king man that thing. actually want him around. Exactly. So <laughs> Randall and the others who have been separated from him, they've relocate Kevin and they abduct him. Kevin is not happy. Once in the gang, always in the gang, He's man. You very can't fucking leave the resentful gang. that these assholes just took him from like kind of a good life. And historically, being, you know, like the male heir to a Greek empire, that's a good that's a life good to get into. Well, would they give him crap because he wasn't a blood heir? Yeah, yeah. maybe. But you know, back then they really cared. King Agamemnon's played by Sean Connery, so I don't think anybody's gonna be like challenging him. Dude, you if I was adopted I mean? by a Greek Sean Connery, are you kidding Fuck, me? yeah. I mean, it I wouldn't that... be a sexual thing, obviously, but <laughs> another sidebar. I love that Sean Connery does not change his accent for anyone. <laughs> like no. any time. In, in fucking Highlander, it. he's supposed to be a Spanish dude. He very much has a Scottish accent. Oh my God. He's supposed to be Greek in this, very much still has a Scottish accent. Just he doesn't not try. care. In the untouchables. That's supposed to be like Chicago. He's supposed to be a Chicagoan. And he and still he sounds like a <laughs> Scottish accent. <laughs> like, at what point were they like, you know. They're just like, it's Sean Connery. We'll let him do whatever the fuck he wants. At what point were they not looking at Sean Connery? Because I feel like when you're a starting actor, like when you're starting out, you're like, yeah, I can do anything. Or yeah, I can do this accent. Like what made him... I mean, he he didn't do very much before he got James Bond, man. That was a pretty yeah, early that, on. Well, I mean, it's a pretty He did Darby O'Gill and The Little People, which we're going to fucking watch next year. Oh, I remember that Next one. year, because uh, it's my favorite, and he sings in it, and it's like one of his very first movies. It sounds super scotch um, when he's singing, We're going to have to, like, that one's going to be an exception to the Disney rule, because it's a Disney musical from the 60s. Uh, um, live action. It's not animation. Um yeah. But yeah, no, I think people just let him do whatever the fuck he wants. Because he's Sean Connery. And You're people going to come to see Sean Connery. Anyway, the group has now fallen through another hole in the space-time fabric, and they have arrived at the ill-fated Titanic. After it sinks, they are forced to tread water while they argue with each other. Evil manipulates the group again and transports them to his realm, the Time of Legends. After surviving encounters with ogres and a giant, Kevin and the dwarves locate the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness and are led to believe that the most fabulous object in the world awaits them there. Ultimate Darkness waits them there, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) They're literally, they're obviously being lured into one of evil's traps. Yeah, man, this is some... Very transparent, again. This is some but, Hansel and Gretel, like, yep. it's been done before. It was done in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, too. Absolutely. She's like, come hither. And they're like, okay. 
Evil takes the map and locks the group in a cage over an apparent bottomless pit. While looking through the Polaroids he took, Kevin finds one that includes a map. The group realizes that there's a hole in the fortress near them. They escape from the cage, steal the map, and split. Evil confronts Kevin, who they've abandoned in the fucking cage, and takes the map <gasps> from him. That's so fucking rude, man. They, they, they abducted him and then they abandoned him in a cage. Yep. The dwarves return with various warriors and fighting machines taken from across time. But evil has no trouble overpowering all of them. As Kevin and the dwarves cower, evil prepares to unleash his ultimate power. Suddenly, he is engulfed in flames and burned into charcoal. From the smoke, a besuited elderly man emerges, revealing that he is the supreme being. He also reveals that he allowed the dwarves to borrow his map and the whole adventure had been a test of his creation. He orders the dwarves to collect all the pieces of concentrated evil, warning that they can be deadly if not contained. He also recovers the map and allows the dwarves to rejoin him in his creation duties. He basically gives them a slap on the wrist and says, get back to work. <clears throat> The supreme being disappears with the dwarves, leaving Kevin behind as a mist piece of evil begins to smolder. Kevin awakes in his bedroom to find it filled with smoke and firefighters who are breaking down the door to rescue him as they put a, f a fire out in his house. One of the firemen finds that his parents' brand new super fancy toaster is actually the thing that set the house on fire. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, as Kevin recovers, he finds that one of the firemen resembles Agamemnon hmm. and discovers that he has, still has photos from his adventure. Kevin's parents discover the smoldering rock in the toaster oven. Recognizing it as a piece of evil, Kevin warns them not to touch it, ignoring him like they always fucking do. They touch it and explode. <laughs> they exploded, man leaving only their shoes as Agamemnon, the firefighter, winks and hops off in the truck, leaving Kevin an orphaned child. That's how this movie ends. He winks and just He's ditches. like, bye. Dude, this orphaned kid's life got child. destroyed. Happy family movie. The end. So why should we give a shit about this sad tale of a child who almost got adopted by a happy family and then got ripped away from them and thrown into a cage and then... <laughs> <laughs> um, Terry Gilliam, as well, we yeah. mentioned earlier, if you don't know who he is, he is the um, cartoonist behind Monty Python, all of the graphics mm -hmm. and stuff. And he also helped write some sketches. He wrote this screenplay, actually, with other Monty Python alums, um, including Michael Palin, um, who appears in the movie with Shelley Duvall. And small reoccurring reoccurring roles throughout time as Vincent and Pansy. Vincent and Pansy are in the Robin Hood scene. Mm -hmm. They're on the Titanic. They like keep popping up. It's mm -hmm. like reincarnations of these it. two people. Um, the part of Robin Hood was originally re written for Palin, and the role of evil was originally written for John Cleese. Oh. What? But John Cleese was eventually cast as Robin Hood, and Jonathan Pierce was offered the role of evil. In his book, Monty Python, The Case Against Irreverence, Serility, Profanity, Vilification, and Licentiousness, hmm. and Licentious Abuse, 
Robert Hewson describes the dwarves as representing the python trope. So each one of the dwarves represents a python. Okay. We have the nice one, Fidget, who is said to represent Palin. Mm -hmm. The self-appointed leader, Randall, who Mm -hmm. is supposed to represent John Cleese. Mm -hmm. The aerobatic run. The aerobatic one, Strutter, is Eric Idle. Mm -hmm. The quiet one, Og, is Graham Chapman. And the noisy rebel is Wally, represented by Terry Jones. Mm -hmm. And then the nasty, filthy, loving one, Vermin, is... Terry Gillingham It's just Snow White and Seven Dwarves with a little 11-year-old boy. Correct. It's like the dirty Seven Dwarves. Except (laughs) Hobo Seven Dwarves. Yeah. But that's the thing, too, though, is like she got a happy ending. This kid did not. He did not get a happy... I mean, I guess going to the system might be better than his home life. I don't know. He didn't seem like he was going... He got a. He needs to get idea. swept up by Sean Connery. Where's Sean Connery? I thought he was gonna do be like, come home and live with me and my firefighter family or some shit. I don't know, but do something. Don't just wink and be like, I exploded your parents. <laughs> Bye. Um, we talk about alternate castings a lot because we like to know that. I do so like to know that. Mrs. Ogre is that one lady who's in everything. Her name is Tracy Ullman. No, no, no. It's escaping me. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway. Oh, Mrs. Ogre, you're, while you're looking up, she, Ruth Gordon and Gilda Radner were also considered for the role of Mrs. Ogre. So I just love Gilda Radner. So I do too. I her name is brought Gilda up, Radner. I'm fucking into it. But yeah, um, yeah. I would have loved that movie is great. I love it. It's weird. It's fucked up. It uses really great practical effects. Terry Gilliam has a very special eye and a unique artistic palette. He uses very muted colors um if you know if you've seen any other of his movies there's the adventures of baron munchausen there has is it baron munchausen or baron von munchausen it's baron munchausen okay i always used to mix that up they yeah i love that one that one's a good one yeah. i think that's but the color palette you know what i mean yeah like it's very muted, almost pastelly to give it. I feel like yeah. this kind of spooky. dreamy again, yeah, a dreamy, spooky, dreamy nightmare. Quality. Yeah, yeah. Because that was he's like it's like a dream, it's like a nightmare. So it's like a combination yeah. of the two of them. That's why I feel like I, I'm glad that we paired these two movies together mm-hmm. because Rary Harryhausen really was an influence, and you can directly see the influence. In Time Bandits, in any other movie that he's ever done, right. it, it's there. The palettes are very similar. The styles are very similar. See, I love that when there's a stylistic palette that really gives it a different feel. But uh, you were wondering who Mrs. Ogre was. Catherine Hellmond. She was in Who's the Boss? All the things. Yeah, she's been in a ton of stuff. She uh, ultimately ended up with Mrs. Ro- uh, she was Ogre, in but. Soap, Overboard. Oh, I didn't know she was in Overboard. Soap. Brazil. Time Bandits, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was in a bunch of Pixar shorts. Anyway. Oh, yeah. All sorts of stuff. But you know who got top billing? John Connery. <laughs> I bet he wrote that in his fucking Oh, I contract. bet. And then second <laughs> second is Shelley Duvall. God love Shelley Duvall. And then She's John Cleese. And then Catherine Hellman. But that's interesting to me. Cause you know he was he was like in it, but you know he fucking like he was in it for like ten minutes. I know, like total, both scenes like ten fucking minutes. Yo, the dude that plays Winston the ogre is called Peter Vaughn. He was in Game of Thrones. As, give me a second. 
Oh, there you go. Uh, as master or as Maester Aemon. Oh fuck yeah! Okay, yeah, that's cool. I Connecting got you. dots. That's everybody was in Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's true. I'm excited everybody that they're is. bringing Game of Thrones back. I have another opportunity to get in on a Game of Thrones show. You know what's sad is like all the people that played the dwarves were like are passed away. Almost all of them. Well, no, but they're all like later down the line of who's getting billing. Oh, that's also tragic, but does not surprise me right. in Hollywood. Because they're in, on the screen like most of the most time. Most of the fucking all time. All of the time. Yeah, dude. Uh, little you know, people get too. a bad fucking rap for how hard they work in the biz. So It also has that guy, John Broadbent, who is in Moulin Rouge, The Iron Lady, Gangs of New York. He was... Um, he also plays um, Harry Potter. Those. Fuck. Uh, Slughorn. Slughorn. Professor Slughorn. He's in a bunch of stuff. Dude, but he's in also this in Game movie, of Thrones. He's only, also only in it for like a couple of minutes at the he, very beginning. He's also in Game of Thrones. He's the Archmaester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they basically just stripped this movie and put some of those people <laughs> into Absolutely. Game of Thrones. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad we watched this movie together. You and I have never sat down and watched this movie together. But, the, again, this was no. another one of those movies my dad showed me. Me, too. Yeah. But I watch a lot of Monty Python with my dad. That's so. because Monty Python is hilarious. It's amazing. And I had Still crushes great. on, like, half the dudes in that group. Definitely. <sighs> God. Funny Graham sexy. Chapman. Oh, Funny that was is a sexy. sad one. Huh? Yeah, Michael Chaplin. I know. Woo. He's yeah. the one. He's he's in no, a fish no, called Michael Palin. Oh, Graham Michael Chapman. Thank you. Okay. You Michael like Palin. Michael Palin? I do like Michael Palin. I like Graham Chapman and Eric Idle. I like Eric Idle too, in a way. But I mean, but more like Michael Palin. John Cleese is just so John Cleese. You I know, know what I mean. That's it. There's so fucking nothing... classic. I love him. Have Michael... you ever seen Faulty Towers? That's some classic John Cleese. Yeah, British TV. I th- I don't know if I've seen it, but I know I've heard of it. But I remember Michael Palin was in a fish named Wanda or fish called fish Wanda. Fish called Wanda. Yeah. I put that on recently because I fucking love that movie. I did movie. too. I was looking at it in the back. I yeah, love that's that a good movie. one. Oh, Jamie Lee Curtis. <sighs> Stunning. So awesome. Anyway, rant. That was just a tirade. <laughs> that made about how much we love anything. And we wanted to oh raise my the awareness God. that like. Speaking of tirades, I could go on a even longer tirade about the next movie about fucking fern gully fucking dude. Fern gully. dude i love <laughs> fern gully anytime i was nannying i'd always be like they'd be like oh i've never seen it and i'm like we're gonna watch we're fern gully now. today like dude fern gully was another one of the like brave little toaster last week fern gully was one of those like daycare movies for me i yeah. always wanted to put this one on this movie is the greatest not only is baddie Played by Robin Williams, Ugh. but the music in this are fucking dope. It's, it's, it's like 90s. 80s. It's, it's, anyway, it's, but even though it's it's eighties as hell, even though it's but it's the early no, 90s. it's the nineties. There was a bleed over in the late eighties, early. There 90s. always is, yeah. yeah. Nineteen ninety two. So anyway, let's get into Ferngully. Krista is a fairy. <laughs> she is, bitch. Krista's a fairy. You said it. You made it seem like she's a fairy. Like she maybe it's, wasn't. Just because it's Pride Month, month doesn't mean no. Not a that. Fairy. I was talking about the way you said it made you like sound like you didn't believe that she was a fairy. No, she is a fairy. No, I know. Seen it. it sounded like that. It wasn't a pride thing. Anyway, okay. anyway, <laughs> Krista is a fairy of curious nature who lives in Fern Gully, a picture a picturesque rainforest. Free from all human pollution. The fairies of Ferngully once lived in harmony with humans, but believe them to have gone extinct after having been driven away by a dark spirit named Hexus. Krista is the apprentice of Magi, a fairy who imprisoned Hexus in a tree. 
Who plays Hexus, Aaron? Fucking Tim Curry. Yeah. Ugh. Talk what? about spooky mm. vibes. Whenever he's like singing, to, you're like, I need Woo! to fan myself. Woo! I never anyway. heard the hots for Tim Curry in that way, but he's a great talent. Tim Curry has affected my sexual development. In I many hope not ways now because he also looks like the Crypt Keeper, dude. Oh my, I don't want to talk about it. It's going to make me sad. Anyway, one day Krista <laughs> explores a new part of the forest and meets Batty Coda, a bat, obviously, like I mentioned, played by Robin Williams, <laughs> a bat who claims to have been experimented on by humans, giving him a manic and deluded personality. However, Fairies refuse to believe him except for Krista, who volunteers to investigate the situation. She meets Zack, a young lumberjack. I love that they describe him as a lumberjack. I mean, that's what he is, but he's not dressed like a traditional, like... No, there's this, like, certain 90s punky style that they're going for. But he's also supposed to be, like, a young kid with his, like, saggy jeans and, like, rip whatever... But he's that got his Walkman. Like, he's cool. It's 1992. The blonde kind of like mullet almost thing. But Surfer that was dude. what was hot in the 90s, dude. Yeah, for sure. I remember being like, oh my God, he's so dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach, the young lumberjack whom Krista accidentally shrinks when she tries to save him from being crushed by a falling tree. I mean, I guess that counts as saving. <laughs> it does. She doesn't really know how to restore him back to normal size, though. So now he's the size of a fairy. And has no fairy power, so this is going to get interesting. <laughs> the tree that Hexus is imprisoned in is cut down by Zack's supervisors, Tony and Ralph. Hexus quickly begins to regain his powers by feeding on pollution. He manipulates Tony and Ralph to drive to Ferngully. In Ferngully, Zack meets Pips, played by Christian Slater. A fairy jealous of Zach's relationship of Krista because he wants to bone Krista too. And she's saying, uh-uh. uh-uh. Zach begins to fall in love with Krista, but hides the true reason that humans had returned. When the signs of Hexus's resurrection begin to manifest themselves in poisoned, in poisoned trees and rivers, Zach finally admits that the humans are destroying the forest. The fairies mount... Whoa, let me try that again. <laughs> what I was about to say was going to be sexual. The fairies, mount an attempt, <laughs> the fairies mount an attempt to defend their homes. Knowing their fight is hopeless, Zack convinces Batty to aid him in stopping the machine before it destroys them. When Zack makes his presence known to Tony and Ralph, Hexus takes over the machine and begins to wildly destroy the forest. Maggie sacrifices herself to give the other fairies a chance. And she tells Krista to remember everything she's learned. Zack manages to stop the machine, depriving Hexus from the source of its power. But he manifests himself within the oil inside the machine and mm. begins to ignite the forest ablaze. Gross. Krista sacrifices herself by allowing herself to be devoured by Hexus. All seems lost until he begins to sprout limbs. And leaves like a tree. Batty, <laughs> like a tree. Pips, and the rest of the fairies rally to have powers that they've been given by Krista, which has caused the seed that she planted to start growing through Hexus. And now Hexus and the machine are both imprisoned in this newly grown tree. Krista appears after the fight, having survived and succeeded Magi as the magical fairy. She gives Zack a seed, begging him to remember everything that's transpired, and she forlornly restores him to human size. Remembering the seed in his hand, 
Zack promises to remember his adventure and buries the seed in the soil before telling Tony and Ralph that things are going to change as they leave the forest behind. The seed sprouts new growth for Ferngully as Krista playfully chases Pips and Batty into the forest and happily ever after. But unfortunately, <laughs> why we should give a shit? Why oh should we God. give a shit about this movie? Other than the fact that it's amazing. Fucking climate change. You know, that's yeah, why. Clim- well, so I was looking at it too. Deforestation. I was looking at it too. And the woman who plays Krista is Samantha Mathis. She mm-hmm. was in American Psycho as Courtney Rollinson. Yeah. I was like, where do I know her from? Also, I'm not going to lie. I saw it on an episode of Law & Order SVU as well. So. God, dude. You and SVU, man. <laughs> I know. But I was going to be honest at least. I'm going to be. I'm going to be honest. And I feel like. The makers of this film were hoping that it would have a deeper impact and we wouldn't be in a situation that we're in right now in our in our current thing. Well, apparently nobody listened. Did you know that Cheech and Chong were in this movie? I was going to get to that. Okay, because I didn't. I I knew Tone Lip was in it because he was that dope iguana. I was going to get to that. So the producer, Wayne Young, said his passion for the environment was his biggest motivation for making this film. Duh. Duh. It's I was obvious. like, obviously. Yeah. He said he was trying to make this film blatantly environmental, although we've gone a lot, gone to a lot of trouble to avoid being preachy. Mm-hmm. We also want it to be viewed as entertainment. And I think they did a really great job. Oh, I agree. And like really, it that's wasn't a preachy. fine fucking line that they were walking and they did a fantastic job. Yeah. The music helped a lot. Oh, for sure. I think it wasn't preachy. It had bigger kind of actors in it as well. But it did. as a kid, I just remember thinking it was fun and entertaining and then also learning something about the environment. Mm-hmm. So the inspiration for the story of Fern Gully came from a story written by the director's former wife, Diana Young. Diana first wrote the story Fern Gully 15 years before the film's release. Hmm. Wayne said that the couple planned to have a film adaptation made for at least five years before it actually was made. Mm-hmm. And then they spent seven years dreaming and hustling and following their dreams to get this production made. And it still took like another three years of actual production. This movie had a lot of problems. This was another movie that was... Um, we talked last week about the Brave Little Toaster getting kind of preyed upon yeah. and being a Disney movie without being a Disney movie. It seemed like the Brave Little Toaster had a little bit more autonomy than this movie did. Yeah. Wayne stated that their dream was not possible until the success of The Little Mermaid, which brought back popularity of animation. Oh, yeah. And so they were able to greenlit the, greenlight the film. Which is a connection because Jodie Foster, who is The Little Mermaid, is also Thumbelina. Jodie Foster? Mm-hmm. Sorry, not Jodie Foster. What's her fucking name? Jodie something. It's like Jodie Foster. Jody Foster. No. Oh, my God. That would be fun. Dude, that would be not. a very different movie. That's a different movie, movie man. I kind of want to see it. <laughs> different fucking movie. Jodie Benson. There, there we, we go. go. There like, we That's go. That's not right. I knew I wrote out her name. Yeah, Jodie Benson. So she was Thumbelina and The Little Mermaid. But that was a big popular one at the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the hand-drawn scenes in the film were complemented by computer animation. This was that really beautiful moment in time when they were still doing a lot of the old style, but now computers were becoming more commonplace, and so they were able to do that crossover. Little Mermaid had the same thing. Aladdin had the same thing. Everything was hand-drawn and then fed into the computers, and then it was like a mix of all of it. Uh, See, they I did use it that way. Too. I like all yeah. the, like 
Stop, it gives stop it di- animation there. <laughs> it gives it dimension and yeah. depth and I don't know. Um, there were a few elements of this movie that were 100% computer animated, like the flock of birds. That would have taken a lot longer to do it by hand, oh so God, they did yeah. it by uh, computer. Um, so there's just like little moments in time. This is like the beginning of the big push for the help for from computers for animation. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the actors because I, okay. as an actor, I love talking about actors. <laughs> as you know, <laughs> this film marked Robin Williams. This film marked Robin Williams' first animation role. Really? This was his yes. first. Listen to this. With the character Batty Coda being created specifically for him. Mm-hmm. Williams provided 14 hours worth of improvised lines for the part, which had been originally conceived as just an eight-minute role. Director Bill Coyer was so impressed with the voice and the whole work that he ended up doing, he tripled the screen time for the character because fucking Robin Williams is the best. 15 hours? Yes. Oh, my God. Williams went on to provide... The critically applauded voice of the genie in Disney's Aladdin mm-hmm. later on the same year. Oh, that was the same year. This well, is they where, realized his talent. This is where the drama with Disney Ooh, gets in. They snatched him Williams up. had already agreed to do the voice, voice of Batty Coda before being approached to do Aladdin. Jeffrey Katzenberg. And if you know anything about the history of fucking Disney, you know who Jeffrey Katzenberg is. Mm-hmm. He was the CEO of Disney for a long time. Mm-hmm. And definitely, like, he had a grasp during that, like, big renaissance yeah. movement. Um, so Jeffrey Katzenberg tried to force Williams to withdraw from Ferngully on the grounds that he didn't want him voicing two animated characters at the same time in the same year. Williams obviously fucking refused. Yeah. He gave him the big middle finger. Also, that's him refusing a job. Yeah, exactly. According to Wayne Young, Disney repeatedly interfered with the production of film, Fern Gallery, twice taking over spaces that produced had, producers had already rented by offering to pay more. When the so isn't that fucking backhanded? Yeah. When producers eventually set up a studio in a former brewery in San Fernando Valley, Disney attempted to purchase the brewery. Well, that's petty as fuck. In 2017, Vanity Fair approached Katzenberg and asked him for a comment. Of course, he declined like the little bitch he is. <laughs> I'm a little opinionated on that. That's why I need like a whole season for Disney because I'm going to go on some rants. I know. Um, and my last little like fun actor note business, uh, the voice cast of Fern Grelly was so passionate about the message. Everyone worked for scale wages. And basically that means they work for free. That's so No sweet. one really got paid for this movie. And it was also a reuniting. You mentioned Cheech and Chong. This was the first time that they had worked together in six years. Wow. They did it it for the environment. They did. Special. They were voicing the Beatle brothers Stump and Root. Cheech Marin is quoted as saying, it was just like old times, but we only worked for like two or three hours and then ate some pizza and split. That sounds like a good job. And then they like, I mean, they're best friends, lifelong friends. So cute. Love them. Um, yeah, man, that's what I got for fucking Ferngully. Oh I oh my God. love that movie so fucking much. I do too. And it made me think, at the time, I just fucking loved the movie. But like, there was a lot going on in climate change in the early 90s. 
Because that's kind of where Al Gore, well, I mean, Al Gore's been working on climate change for fucking ages, but that's where he was in the vice presidency. And so he could actually try to make more things happen. So he was at VP from 1993 to 2001. He launched Globe, which is a program on Earth Day that happens, but that was after the movie. He was one of the first politicians to grasp the seriousness of climate change and to call for a reduction in emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So in the 80s, you know, the big thing was to save the ozone layer. Like Mm. that was the big environmental thing. And so in the 90s, it was climate change as well as pollution. And well, I guess they're kind of connected. So it makes sense that, you know, one would roll into the other. And... There was a three. It was in 1990. There was a three-day conference with 42 countries called the Global Marshall Plan, and so that started in the nine, like in 1990. So I wonder if it being on the political platform, finally, and having all having 42 countries participate, definitely raised the bar a little bit. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. I always loved to know what was going on at the time because it movies heavily influence what's going on in society and vice versa. Like, you know, they're the, I, I mean, I bring up, I bring up that mirror quote by Shakespeare all the time. That's, it's literally what movies are doing. It's showing us, it's flipping that mirror onto us to show oh, yeah. us the reflection of life that's being lived in front of us. You know what I mean? Well, especially for those who don't know the areas that they might be going in and the stories that they're trying to tell, that's like the only exposure that they've gotten to some of those stories you think Absolutely. about like crooklyn and like all those other spike lee movies that are re- we've talked about that last week that's right because spike lee was the first director in the fucking 80s no less to really figure out how to light dark colored skin like for people of color mm. otherwise it was pale and it was just kind of like they didn't know how to do it they just did it for everybody and they're like fuck it but he gave us certain warmth and good feeling to it you know what i mean especially when things are warm feeling everyone gets a little it's easier to kind of ingest that story Mm. i guess but his stories were comedic in nature but also very real about what was going on in new york in their neighborhoods Mm. so i just thought that's one of the reasons i think i would say i love movies is that it's a it's a telling tale of what was going on at the time but also those movies affect society like rosemary's baby and the manson family mm-hmm. like that just yeah we'll get into that more when we do roman polanski next season oh, yes. i can't yeah. wait because i love yeah. rosemary's baby yeah dude that wraps it up that's this week fancy fantasy i'm glad fantasies. we wrapped it up with fern gully because that was a great ending I if i don't say fern so gully, myself fern gully is a shit if Everyone should watch it. it. It's sweet. It's not even that it. long. You could just get into it and be like, okay. It's literally 90 minutes because everything in the 90s it was, was 90, 90 minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted you to get in and get out. Yeah, it was great. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for tuning in. Follow, like, share all of our jazz on social media, Required Viewing Podcast. And go you th- can now visit us at the Required Viewing Podcast.com. As of now. As <laughs> of right out. now. All of our merch and all that jazz. Merch, uh, live tickets, street team info. It's all on the website, www.requiredviewingpodcast.com. Bow, bow. Do 
Dude, That's if so we great. could, like, if, if we I'm could so put the, mu- the music on there, it's like, and it would fade away, so it wouldn't yeah. be the whole time. That would be super yeah, annoying. That would be good. But we're going to work We'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll see. So uh, you can check out our website. Uh, you can also follow me at Aaron Malane Official on all the jazz. You can follow <laughs> Chloe at Chloe Riggs Makes Things on Instagram. Next week, Ooh. we are doing whore. I have been waiting so long. She's made me wait. She doesn't let me put in horror movies in every single episode because I could literally find an That's horror because movie we're supposed to, to be, stick into every episode. We're supposed to be separating the genres, know, and you just want to bleed horror to and everything. And I, we've talked about this. I know this is a this is a big point. I know of not contention necessarily, but this is a big deal at RVP Studios over here, Yakisoba Studios, is that. I don't love horror. I mean, I don't... Okay, let me correct myself. I don't love gore and, like, a bunch of stuff. I know that you're saying that some of it is so fake that it's like that, but I like the psychological thrillers. I like but the ones that I'm fuck saying. with your horror mind. that's just encompasses so much, and there's so many different facets. So I like facets. an aspect of it, but then there's a bigger aspect, I feel like, is the most of it that I don't really enjoy. Yeah, it depends. It depends. It depends. Next week's movies, though, well, let us know what you think about horror really movies. Aren't really gory, so yeah, that's... which is why we watch them because yeah. I wanted to watch this. We are uh, next week. If you want to watch along, you can watch Todd Browning's Freaks from 1932. Um, we also watched Gaslight. 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 Mm-hmm. From 1944. And Aaron's and personal favorite. Yeah, I know. It's the really like, I really love this movie. I'm so glad I got to watch it with you. The Haunting from 1963, story originally by Shirley Jackson. I love that one. Yeah. And we'll so. get into that one because there's some there's some tea we're going to spill about yeah, that movie. I'm pretty fucking fired up about that movie. I know. There's a lot of shit going on. Ooh. Anyway. Get ready. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, happy viewing. Happy viewing. Hello. This is required viewing. This podcast was a Yaki Soba Studios production. With a special thanks to our producer, Michael Murray. With graphics and music done by Colin Pearson.